0: welcome to this episode of the greenville oaks message broadcast the mission of the greenville oaks church is to inspire people to follow jesus because we're convinced that following jesus is the best way of life possible find out more about greenville oaks at Greenvilleoaks.org and connect with us on social media we would love it if you could rate and review our podcast it makes it easier for others to find us and now on to this week's message with lead minister wade hodges Hello and welcome to everyone who's watching and listening online, to everyone gathered here in this space. It is good to be back with you after enjoying a couple of weeks away. I appreciate so much the good work that John Seibert and Keith Maloney did in my absence, but now I'm back with you and ready to dive into Acts chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there to Acts chapter 5 and On your way to Acts 5, you might want to notice that at the very end of Acts chapter 4, Luke gives us the most idyllic description of the early church in all the New Testament. Who wouldn't want to be a part of the kind of church he describes at the end of Acts 4? It's a church that is completely unified. All the people are one, he says, in heart and mind. The power of grace, the power of the resurrection is at work among them in miraculous ways. There's radical generosity to the point that some members of the church are selling pieces of property and taking the proceeds from that sale and bringing it to the apostles so that it can be distributed among the church so that there are no needy persons among them. I mean, I ask you again, who wouldn't want to be a part of that kind of church? Luke's description reminds me of the way I remember feeling at the end of church camp when I was a teenager. Some of you may remember that feeling as well. You've never felt closer to God or to the members of your youth group or the members of your cabin that you stayed with for a week. You were on an emotional and spiritual high. Your life has never been better. You fell in love with someone on Friday night at the bonfire. You don't know each other's last names, but by the end of the night, you're promising to get married four years later when you both graduate high school. And then the next day, Saturday morning, your parents show up to take you home and you say, I don't want to leave. I don't want to go home. I don't want to leave this place. I want to stay here on this mountaintop with these people forever. We're going to sing. We're going to pray. We're going to play softball. We're going to clean the cabin bathrooms together. I don't want to leave. But what our parents knew that we didn't was, no, 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 no. It's better just to go on home. Because summer camp mountaintop experiences do not last. And as Luke is about to show us in chapter five, that early church mountaintop experience we Read about at the end of Acts 4. Well, it doesn't last either. So let's pick it up. Acts 5, verse 1. He says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, fear seized all who heard about what had happened. And then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out and buried him. And about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the Lord? Listen. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. How many of you want to be a part of that kind of church? Or let me rephrase. How many of you can think of at least a couple of people in this church that you would like to see drop dead? <laughs> it's, it's okay to admit that this story makes us really uncomfortable. And I say that because sometimes we as Christians have a hard time admitting our emotional discomfort when reading certain parts of the Bible. It's it's okay to be honest about how this particular story makes us feel. I really, really, really wish this harsh, strange, uncompromising story wasn't in the Bible. I can live without it. I can't find any grace or mercy in this story. It's ammunition for skeptics. And critics of Christianity, I can live without having to explain or defend it to those who use it as an excuse to not take Jesus or the gospel or church life seriously. But nevertheless, it's in our Bibles. It's a part of scripture. And so we have to balance our emotional discomfort with this kind of story, and there are many others like it scattered throughout the scriptures, with intellectual honesty and face it, Head on, what is this story doing in our Bibles? What kind of God would do this to two people? And why exactly does Luke choose to include, even highlight, this particular story in his account of early Christianity and life in the early church in Jerusalem? It's not great PR for the church or for Christianity. It created the wrong kind of buzz in the community. I mean, could you imagine? How do you invite someone to church after this? Hey, do you want to come to church with me? Nice people, lots of free food, and sometimes God kills a couple of people, (laughs) but only when they pretend to be something they're not, which rarely happens at church, so don't worry. I'm putting this story in context. Remember how... The resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost has created something special in Jerusalem. And the first Christians are enjoying deep communion with God and with each other. And it's showing up in tangible, observable ways and how they treat one another, but also how they manage their property and how they manage their money Specifically, Luke tells us at the end of chapter 4, there's one disciple named Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement. Everyone wants to be like Barnabas. He sold a piece of property and brought all of the money in and gave it to the apostles for distribution among the church. And he's held up as the shining example of generosity. Everybody wants to be like Barnabas, the son of encouragement. But then these other two disciples, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a piece of their property too, and... For whatever reason, they don't give all the proceeds to the church. No one was forcing them to. It was a voluntary practice. Peter says this much. It was your property to do with what you wanted before you sold it. It was your money to do with what you wanted after you sold it. For whatever reason, maybe because they feel pressured by Barnabas's example. Maybe not everybody wants to always be like Barnabas. Or because... They liked the way he was celebrated for his generosity. They liked the attention he received when he delivered his gift. For whatever reason, they decide together to pretend to give it all while holding some of it back for themselves. Now, of which sins are they guilty? We might assume they're guilty of greed Certainly deception, a deception of the worst kind. Peter says you're trying to deceive the Holy Spirit, but even their deception is of a specific kind that we might call hypocrisy. They pretend to be more spiritual. They pretend to be more generous. They pretend to be more committed than they really are. The word hypocrisy comes from the world of Greek drama. Literally, it means an actor or a pretender. Someone who plays a role or someone who plays a part. It means to wear a mask, which is what ancient actors would do when they portrayed multiple characters in a Greek play. In Ananias and Sapphira... They try to lie to the apostles, to the church, but also to the Holy Spirit by pretending to be something they're not. And the Holy Spirit, through Peter, judges them for their hypocrisy. They both fall over dead. Ananias in first service, and then a few hours later, Sapphira in second service, it's proof the Holy Spirit does not discriminate between the services, quality and judgment. Well, why are they judged so harshly? I think it's because their sin, their deception, their hypocrisy threatens the integrity of Christian community in Jerusalem, the kind of unity, the kind of fellowship, the kind of generosity described at the end of chapter four is only possible in an open and honest environment where there is no pretense. The church in Jerusalem, remember, is comprised of repentant sinners who, in Acts chapter two, were willing to admit that they helped crucify God's son. The Jerusalem church's origin story is rooted in grace, It was a church where everyone was given a second chance after making the biggest mistake imaginable, rejecting Jesus, the Son of God. But not only that, there are no needy persons among them because those who are in need are willing to express their needs. They're not hiding their needs. They're not hiding their problems. The Jerusalem church enjoys a special kind of freedom that comes from telling the truth about themselves. They can tell the truth about their sin, yes, but they can also tell the truth about their need. And the truth has set them free. But then along come Ananias and Sapphira, And they tell a lie. They can't give all the money to the church. They don't. They won't give it all to the church. They didn't have to. And they didn't have to lie about it either. They had other options. They could have truthfully said, here's half the money from our property. We give half to the church and we're keeping half for ourselves. They could have confessed, we want to be like Barnabas. We do. And we want to give all of it, but we're just not there yet. Bear with us. They could have admitted, you know, we're kind of jealous of Barnabas and we're tempted to compete with him. Here's what's going on in our heart right now. Pray for us, help us. They didn't have to lie. They had other options. They could have told the truth, but instead they put on their mask and pretended to be something they were not. and the Holy Spirit strikes them down. Perhaps because few things offend God more than when religious people pretend to be something they're not. What kind of God would do this? Strike two people dead. They're in front of everybody in the middle of church a God who hates hypocrisy might do it. And maybe the penalty for their hypocrisy is instant death, because nothing can kill Christian community faster than hypocrisy. And I suppose if there's any grace in this story to be found at all is that it only happened one time. Because if God killed all the religious hypocrites who show up at church, who would be left to bury the bodies? And so instead, God uses Ananias and Sapphira and makes an example of them for everyone else, for those of us who are always tempted to put on a mask and pretend to be something we're not, especially when we come to church. That temptation is always there for some of us. It's pervasive. We can pretend that we don't have any doubts, that we have it all figured out. We can pretend that we're not overwhelmed with stress or that we're not struggling financially. We can pretend that we're not addicted. We can pretend that everything is fine. Everything is okay. Nothing to see here. No problems. Keep on walking. Or we can pretend that we are holier, smarter, deeper, more spiritual than we really are. summer, my youngest son, Elijah, watched a number of episodes of the old TV show House on Amazon Prime. It was one of my favorite shows when it originally aired about a decade ago. And I heard those episodes playing in the background in the house. I was reminded that when Dr. House was trying to diagnose some strange disease, he often said, everybody lies. Everybody lies. His assumption was that every patient was hiding something. Every patient wasn't telling the whole truth. Every patient was lying about something in their lives that was making it harder for him to diagnose what was really going on in their body. And he knew that he couldn't make a proper diagnosis until he finally learned the truth. Everybody lies. Our friends in the 12-step community say it this way. You are as sick as your sickest secret. And you will remain sick as long as it remains a secret. You are as sick as your sickest secret, and you will remain sick as long as it remains a secret, but the truth will set us free. So we can't be whole individually, and we can't be the kind of church where broken people can come and find healing as long as we're wearing our masks and pretending to be something we're not. It's in the truth of our brokenness, our sinfulness, our neediness, that the Holy Spirit meets us and begins to heal us and also draw us deeper into community and fellowship with one another. Everybody lies, and you're as sick as your sickest secret, and you'll remain sick as long as it remains a secret, but the truth will set you free. I wonder if there's anyone here. I wonder if there's anyone watching online right now who needs to hear this message today. Probably not, but don't you wish your brother or your cousin or some of those other Christians at those other churches were here to hear this message? Because I love it after a message like this, someone will say, that was a great message. I wish so-and-so had been here to hear it. That was for them, not for me. One of the consistent criticisms from outsiders and skeptics of contemporary Christianity is that they know too many Christians who are hypocrites. Too many mask wearers who pretend to be something they're not. And I find it fascinating that the first sin in the early church to be judged so harshly and so quickly 2,000 years later is still one of the besetting sins undermining our credibility in our community. How many churches are experiencing not an instant or quick, but a slow, torturous death by hypocrisy? Hypocrisy can kill you quick or it can kill you slow. But it's deadly either way. Now, I'm not suggesting that every week when we come together, we have an open mic where we all share our deepest, darkest secrets in a forum like this, especially not in the age of smartphones when everyone has a video camera and access to YouTube at their disposal. No, 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 no. But I do wonder... Do you have some place you can go? Do you have someone or a small group of someones where you can go and tell the truth about yourself in a way that sets you free? I have a couple of minister friends that we regularly visit about how we're doing in key areas of our lives. We do not judge one another. We do not beat each other up. We try not to even give each other advice about how to fix whatever problems it is we're experiencing. What we do is consistently tell each other the truth. And we find tremendous freedom and power in being honest with each other about our struggles, temptations, and failures as fathers, husbands, preachers, and followers of Christ. The greatest freedom I experience as a follower of Christ is immediately after I've had a conversation in which I am brutally honest about myself with someone I trust. The truth sets us free. Are you tired of pretending? Are you worn out from keeping that secret that makes you feel like a hypocrite? The secret, maybe not a secret, just a secret sin, although it could be, but it could just be the secret of your pain, of your heartbreak, of your loneliness. It, it could be the secret of the way you were victimized, hurt by someone else. Are you tired of pretending to be something you're not? Tired of feeling like a hypocrite when you walk in this room or sing a song about the goodness of God or open your communion kit when we gather around the table. What if I told you you are one conversation away from taking a huge step toward healing and wholeness? One conversation. And can you envision having that conversation with someone you trust? Someone you know that loves you and has your best interest at heart more than that, can you imagine the freedom you would feel after that conversation, knowing that you're not pretending anymore? Knowing that you can't be called a hypocrite, knowing that you have neutralized the power your sickest secret has over you. Can you imagine the freedom? You need you to have that conversation. You can't be free and whole without it, but it's bigger than that. We need you to have that conversation because we can never be the church God dreams of us being. We can never be the kind of church that we all want to be a part of Until we all take off our masks and stop pretending. Until we all find the courage and the space, the place, the safety to tell the truth about ourselves. And may God give us that. May God give us the courage to remove our masks. And may God give us the opportunity, the safe place, the safe person, the safe group with whom we can be honest about ourselves. And may we experience the freedom that comes from telling the truth. If you would please stand and let's read this benediction from Ephesians 3 together. As we read this, keeping this message in mind, imagine what is possible. Imagine what God can accomplish with a church that's not pretending. Let's read. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great week. Thank you so much for listening to the message from the Greenville Oaks message broadcast. We hope this message enriched your life and can help you inspire others to follow Jesus because we honestly believe following Him is the best way of life possible. Be sure to connect with us online on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.